Okay, um, let us all stand for the public reading of God's Word. I'm reading from John chapter 8, verses 12 through 30. And uh, Adam will be my responsive reader. I'll read verse 12, and then you'll read verse 13, and so on forth. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, Where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Once more, Jesus said to them, I'm going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sins. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, Will he kill himself? Is that why he says, Where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. You will indeed die in your sins. Who are you, they asked. Just what I have been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy, and what I have heard from him, I, him, I tell the world. They did, they did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I, have, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just as the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. All together now? Even as he spoke, many believed in him. Won't you join me in prayer? Our precious Father, we thank you for gathering us on this Sunday. Lord, today we hear a message regarding how you are the light of this world. In fact, in, in our very selves, the light of life. May your preacher speak your truth with clarity, conviction, and that each and every one of us would listen. And that the message would do something to us. What we hear may change us, the way we look at the world and throughout this whole week, that it will continue to echo in our hearts. And the way we perceive our reality will be markedly affected by it and that you would elevate us, that you would lift us up a little higher because of what we've heard today. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and right before you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray these things. You may be seated. Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. Um, a couple of weeks ago, during when we had the, uh, the, the communion service with the joint service together, we heard that Jesus is the bread of life. And uh, Pastor Daniel compared this living bread of life, Jesus Christ, to manna in the desert during the Exodus. Now, the common thing about the manna and the bread of life is that both have to be taken in daily. We also heard, I mean, first of all, let me, let me ask you guys a question. 
do you guys take the bread of life every day? You, you know how we pray the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day. Give us this day our daily bread. Do you take it in every day? You do. Now, if there are people that don't take it in every day, why? The reason is, is that because we have already crossed the Jordan in our minds, we're already in the promised land, and we have such an abundance of other things. We're filling our, ourselves with substitutes of Jesus. We're filling ourselves with substitutes of the living bread, bread of life. And there are many substitutes that can satisfy us momentarily. It could be Netflix or Amazon Prime or YouTube. These things can distract us away from finding depth in our relationship with God during much needed moments of silence. Look up at me for a second, you guys. Um, how much time would you say that you actually spend with absolutely no, nothing connected to your devices? Like when you have just the time when you're explicitly and intense, intentionally spending it with God. Would you say that you have 10 minutes like that? 15 minutes like that throughout the day? Or do you think that maybe a full hour? For me, I have half, half an hour plus of commute time. And uh, sometimes, most of the times I'll be listening to the radio. Uh, I'll be hearing a sermon or some Christian broadcast. But there are times when I'll just turn it off because I want to be with Jesus riding shotgun, speaking to my heart during that moment. We're so accustomed to plugging in and distracting ourselves that we miss out on the living voice of God and we become less and re less relevant to Him as time goes by. Before we know it, before we know it, we will have been robbed of our faith. The most precious thing that, that sustains us every day will be distant from it. So, Take that as a fair warning. It, it's a warning and reminder that comes to me daily. My wife um, does remind me, like, sometimes I, I like to use a device to help me go to sleep. Sometimes you plug in and then just tune out. You, just, you know, I mean, when I, was, when I was a little younger, one of my favorite things to do is, like, after a long day at work, you go home, turn on the TV, and then, you know, lay down on the couch, and before you know, you, you passed out of sleep. I used to enjoy that, but, but I think that the first moment you awaken to seek Jesus, and then to the last moment before you sleep to seek Jesus, I think that's really the best way, the best way for us to continue to stay engaged and allow the day to start and finish with the Lord as our Lord. When you look at the Gospel of John, they say there are seven I am statements that Jesus makes. The first one was, I am the, say it loud. I am the, we just had it two weeks ago. We just had communion wafer. I am the. You guys uh, on Zoom, take yourself off of mute and help us out here. Jesus is the bread of life. I am the, I am the bread of life, he said. That's the first I am, right? Now, this, when he said, when Jesus says I am, this is, Connected. This is connected to, to the Exodus passage. You guys remember, God handpicks Moses 
the one that murdered an Egyptian and then had to escape to Midian. He has to be, remain a fugitive. On Mount Horeb, God appears to him and he gives him an impossible mission. Tells him, look, you have to go back to Egypt and you have to get my people out. I want you to confront Pharaoh and tell him, I need you to let my people go so that they can worship him out in the desert. Can you think of a more unreasonable thing to ask somebody? That's what Moses had to do. It's unreasonable. It seems impossible, but he had to do it. And so Moses asked a sensible question. Okay, Lord, who should I send? Who should I say that sent me? What's your name? At least, can I tell them what your name is? And then, what was his answer? Tell them that blank sent you. Remember his answer? Come on now, you guys. I know you guys know this. And I'm going to take an answer from you guys. All, all of you guys on Zoom, please take yourself off of mute. It's just of us. We should hear you, okay? What was his answer? Tell them who has sent you. What was the self-disclosed name that he revealed to Moses? What was God's name? Timmy? Do you remember? Priscilla? In Exodus, what was God's name that he revealed to Moses? Iris? Can you help us out here? Wait, you, you said something. What did you say? You remember going over it? It's right in there. It's I am. That's, his, that's the name. I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. That was, that was, the, that was the name. And, uh, and then after, after they go out, they go out. I mean, they're actually, they're actually released by a miracle. After 10 plagues that the Egyptians have to suffer, Pharaoh finally lets them go. And even after they let him go, they pursue him. And then God's like done with it. I said, okay, I'm going to annihilate about 600 chariots that were pursuing the Egyptians. They get swept by the waters while they, the two million, they walk across dry land, across the Red Sea. And, uh, and when they were hungry, God gives them something to eat. Manna, bread from heaven that come down. And this is what Jesus says. Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And when Jesus says this, the people are like, Sir, always give us this bread. When they recognize something good, they hear it, they want it, right? And then this is what Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I have to ask you guys, starting with the shepherds, with Samonim, I have to ask you, have you tasted that bread? Look at the radical promise that he makes. He says, whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. You know what that's referring to? It's talking about our soul satisfaction being met in Jesus that can never be met with by anything else in the world. If we are claimed by God and Jesus claimed us, mine, 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 if he's, if he's claiming me as his own, right? If he said mine to me, to me, my soul will never ever be satisfied unless I come to, the, to, to my Lord Jesus and I take his word. Unless I do his will, 
I will never be satisfied. That's the reality. We devise our own plans. We devise our own ways. But if we're going, even if it seems right to us, at the end of it, at the end of five years, ten years later on, we might have to go, geez, maybe I was not going the right way. Maybe I do. Maybe it's time to do a U-turn and to, and to see where God is leading me. Now today, uh, we don't focus on, uh, on him being the bread of life, but how he is the light of the world. This is the second I am statement. I am the light of the world. Now before we go into that, let me ask you this. How many of you are afraid of the dark? Or when you were growing up, when you were little, were you afraid of the dark? Like, Dad, don't turn off the light. They're like, okay, time to go nighty-night, turning off the light. And like, I started getting like, anybody afraid of the dark? Let me tell you, when I was little, I was like four or five years old. The first time, uh, I think my mom yelled at me because I, I lost a coin. I asked for some money for my mom to go to the neighborhood store to get like a candy, like a little candy. And uh, it was a rainy day, it was muddy, and uh, I think I lost the money. And I remember, I remember my mom, she was really upset. She, she didn't hide it, she showed how upset she was. And that's the first time I remember like crying because my mom sent me back out in the rain. I think I fell down, I scraped my knee, I still have a scar. And that night, we all used to sleep in the same room, okay? So I had dad, mom sleep on this, and then, and then I, was, I was lying next to my mom, and I was looking at the back of her head, and in the darkness, I could swear I could see eyes looking back at me. Because, you know, a child with the imagination, you're scared. I was so scared, I couldn't sleep. It was like, I was like four or five years old, and in the dark, I was like with my eyes wide open, terrified, not, even, not being able to say anything. My mom and my, my dad, they're snoring. My brother, my baby brother's to my side. It was horrible. Light. Light is so comforting to us. Everybody here, at least I can tell you, that everybody here have been born with sight since birth. And uh, you know that we take in the experience of our world and our daily lives through our eyes. The first thing we do when we open up our eyes, we look at the clock, we see, we see things. That's what begins our days. And all the shapes and the colors that we take in through our eyes are only visible because of light. If you remember, going all the way back to Genesis 1, the first chapter of Genesis, the very first order of business that God establishes in verse 3, what was it? Do you remember? I think civil engineers should be pretty intrigued by this because there's a particular order in which he establishes things. The first thing that he brings into existence is, let there be what? Let there be light. Let there be light. Light was the first thing that God created to place things in proper order. And prior to this, the earth was formless and empty. And darkness was over the surface of the deep. If I was to make an analogy of this, of this condition, and this is my per personal testimony, that the very first time before I came to Jesus, if I, if I could describe to you the condition that I was in, that was the condition that I was in before Jesus had become my very light and the source by which to see everything. He was my bearing. I could interpret reality now correctly now that Jesus had entered into my mind. Prior to that, I had no clue. I had no idea. 
I wonder if you see the world by him too. It takes discipline. That's why we call it discipleship. Because we're used to seeing everything from our own position, from our limited scope of things. We judge things according to our own judgments. That's in fact the, the product of fall, the fall of mankind. Was there was a time when we didn't have to worry about what is right and wrong just because if we obeyed God, everything that God said was good, right? But once we had decided, well, I don't think I need to obey that, what entered into the, our reality was evil. Once evil entered into our reality, there was sin. Once sin entered into the into, there was degradation and chaos. There was entropy. Death entered into the picture of human existence because of disobedience. We, no, I mean, we could have had it all easy. We could have had it so easy. But no, we had to. No, I want our eyes open. I want to know. I want to be like God. You know, that's, that, was, that was the flaw, the tragic flaw of the story of humanity. All the sadness and sorrow that we experience today is because of this. Now, in the Exodus story, God appeared to Moses up in Mount Horeb as a burning fire, a flame that would not consume the brush. Can you imagine seeing that? Oh, man. If I was seeing that from a distance, I would too, I too would like, you know, walk, walk further and try to examine. I got to see what this is. But when you go way later into, into Acts chapter 2, it was during the day of Pentecost, after 50 days of the Lord having risen from the grave, when the Holy Spirit came down into the one place where everybody was gathered, you know how he's described the arrival of the Holy Spirit? As tongues of fire. God, in his manifestations, both in how he appeared in the Old Testament and even after Jesus during Acts, in both, he appeared as fire, a light, a power, a source of illumination. Think about that. He wants us to see correctly, not to be deceived by mere appearances, but to see correctly. When Jesus calls himself, I, he says, I am the light of the world, the context of this, we have to examine what precedes this because it will open some doors for you. The context of the passage today is that just before Jesus says that he is the light of the world, there is an incident of a woman being caught in adultery in John 8. You guys remember the story? The Jews, the Pharisees, they bring a woman. They drag this woman out in front of public. They probably toss her to the front. She's probably falling on her knees. This woman was caught in adultery. According to our law, she got to be stoned. Jesus, what you going to do? They lay a trap right in front of our rabbi, our, our Lord. You know what they wanted to see? What do you think they wanted to see? What do, you think, what do, what do all crowds want to see? What do the crowds want to see? When, when, we see? when we look at the Facebook media, when we look at the YouTube, when we look at those channels, when we look at the news, what do the crowds want to see usually? They want to see somebody getting stoned with the stones, you know, being beat down and then having... They wanted to see our Lord Jesus pick up a stone and beat this woman. That's what they wanted to see. But Jesus did not fall for their ploy. 
I want you to think, he is the light of the world as I read this for you. Do you know what he says? He addresses the crowd, he says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw the stone at her. Can you see the light shining onto the darkened conscience of the people that just want to see a bloodbath? From the older ones to the youngest ones, one by one, if they had rocks already picked up, they probably drop it, they hang their head low, they walked away, one by one. If you could picture this, this woman is probably in the dirt, on her knees, with her head down. The Lord crouches down. Jesus looks at her, maybe picks up her face and says, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She probably had tears in her eyes, dirt in her face. She looks up and there's nobody. Nobody around her. And then she looks at Jesus and says, No one, sir. And neither do I condemn you. Go now and live your life of sin. That's my Lord. That's our Jesus. He's the light of the world. It's just after this incident where he magnanimously addresses the violent crowd, dismisses them one by one, and restores this poor woman, a sinner. I mean, if she's caught in adultery, why is she, why is she there alone? Why shouldn't the other person have been with... I mean, if she's in, caught in adultery and it's like a you know, normal affair, there's a guy that was... She was why, why are they bringing over the girl, right? It is just after this when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Does that shed light, no pun intended, to what he means by that? Boom, right? It's like, it, it, it's like a, there's a force behind it when he says it now. It's very useful to not isolate a passage. Sometimes when you, when you hear sermons, they're necessarily reduced to this compartment, you know, but they're, they're connected. You have to examine the connected story. Now, what are the chances, I have to ask, that this woman, after having been forgiven by Jesus in that way, would go back to her life of sin? Can you picture her going, that was a close one. So after, after she walks away from Jesus, she's going to go back into her adulterous affair? I think not. As long as she is following his way now, she has a light of life. As long as we follow Jesus, we will never walk in darkness. We will have the light of life. That is a beautiful assurance, my brothers and sisters, that nobody can take away. Nobody can take away from that, from that from us. Now, since we say light of life, you know, so that it doesn't remain a biblical jargon as Christianese, let's ask ourselves, what does it mean to have the light of life? Before we talk about light, we have to examine the condition and the nature of darkness. You guys remember how the Pharaoh finally released the Israelites? Did he just let them go easily? No, it was this tug of war for like, I don't know, for how long? They had to go through 10 plagues, 10 cataclysmic plagues that they had to 
received some damage. They had to sustain some loss. I mean, they, got, they had gone through a lot for, for God to show them His powers and signs and wonders before they could release their clutches, their evil clutches on, the, on their slaves. During one of the plagues of Egypt, this is the ninth one. Now, I don't know if you remember the ninth plague. Do you guys remember the tenth plague, the final plague that did it? Do you remember the tenth plague of Egypt? It was the death, it was a kill, yeah, killing, the death of every firstborn, not even just people, but including animals. Every firstborn in Egypt. Right before that one, I'm going to read from Exodus 10, 21. So, so you could kind of uh, be revisiting that time. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. This darkness is an extraordinary darkness. It's not just like when the evening comes, you know. Like when you go out to the countryside, there is no city light, so it gets dark necessarily. Like the, there's, no, there's no street lamps or whatever. All you, have see, all you see is maybe illumination from the stars and maybe the moon. It's not even that. What the text is talking about is the kind of darkness that is so dark and so dense I don't know if physicists might call it like a black hole or dark mass or whatever. It's just a horrible thing. It's like the presence of this darkness you can feel with your entire body. That's the darkness that we're talking about. And I want to suggest that there is a reason why this is the ninth plague. The one just before the plague of the death of all the firstborns. Because if you want to talk about the firstborn, the firstborn of the eternally alive, this is Jesus, the one and only begotten Son of God, who died for the world and had entered into the darkness of death for three days. The Egyptians got a taste of that while they're alive. Jesus had to go through that himself. He is the love of God that cannot be extinguished. He returned to life as he was the light of life. Can you imagine this world without that light? Would you survive in that, in that world for one day? I know I wouldn't, not for a second. I would probably want out right away. I wouldn't want to live in a world without that light. I don't know, uh, darkness, darkness and death, they're very, very close associates. They're very close associates because if light is protective of life, life, I mean, you could not have life if you didn't have the sun right now shining on the plants, plants releasing oxygen into the air, us breathing the air. We have plants that sustain life because, you know, we have the light. And the, our animals eat the, the plants. We eat the animals. We eat the plants too, you know. All this natural chain in the ecosystem is all by God's great, brilliant design. And now when we're talking about death, I used to have, I used to contemplate about death. I don't know if you're like me. And it's not because I'm a, it's not because I'm a morbid man. It's not because I'm like a, you know, bent on darkness. 
It's because when I, when I was little, I was thinking about it. I was afraid. How many of you were afraid of death? Have you ever gone through this where you had a season where you come to the reality of death and you go, geez, man, I, I dread it. I don't want to go there. I just want to be alive as long as possible. Have you ever felt that? I have this cousin, second cousin. I grew up with him in high school. And uh, he was some like a big, big deal because he had like a very extraordinarily high IQ. Like there were some local newspapers that like wanted to do an interview with him. I mean, he, he, his score was pretty much off the charts. And, and as we were growing older, I loved to talk to the guy because he had read a lot, you know. And uh, even my genius cousin had, the, has this, had this deepest fear of the unknown and the darkness of death. Being that he was an atheist, that wasn't helpful either. There was no way for him to know soul satisfaction. And his idea of the afterlife was actually more morbid than death itself. I remember he told me, he would do this exercise. He would grab like his friends from high school and sit them down and uh, go through this, this horrendous picture of what it must be like. And he actually made one of, the, one of the girls that he knew cry by going through it. Like, it's like a hyp hypnosis, talking about death, you know. And um, this is the naturalistic explanation. Now, the naturalistic explanation of, of death of the body is that there is no more energy in it. There's no more life force in your body to beat the heart that pumps oxygenated blood into our brains. And all the sensory input and output no longer working. That is the condition of death. Is that what death is like? Where all our, our sensorial faculties extinguish. No more hearing. You cannot hear the voices of your loved ones. No more sense of touch. If you are lying in bed, you cannot feel the hands, hands that are grasping your own hands. No more sense of smell, no, no longer being able to smell what's baking in the kitchen. No longer a, a sense of taste. All the yummy goods that we love to, love to enjoy, all the snacks, none of that available. Even the light, even if the light was shining all around us in the room where your body lay in that final hour, even if it's a super sunny day outside and the brightness invites itself through the crack, cracks in the window, the rods and the cones of your eyes in your retina no longer responds to the outside stimuli. No matter how much of this movement goes on before you, you're no longer responsive. Is that what death is like? Absolute darkness? Here is a harrowing thought. This is something that would probably keep me up at night. Complete divorce from the physical world that we are used to, that we know, but your consciousness still awake and continue on. What if death was like that? Jeez, Lord. Can you imagine that for a second? Eric, imagine it with me. Can you imagine that? Just being awake, conscious, without any other sensorial input. Where am I? Where am I going? Where are my loved ones? Can I reach out to them? Can I talk to them? Can I speak with my shepherds? Can I speak to my wife? Will I ever see them again? Just a memory, just a vague memory and just pitch black darkness. 
Will my consciousness still continue on the experience of reality? Will my soul in thought and self-awareness just keep existing without any connection to physical reality? Oh my Lord, if that's death, no thank you. I don't want any part of it. No thank you. If that is the death of, that awaits every soul, what's the meaning of life here and now? That is the best naturalistic explanation that people can give you, except that there is no consciousness, right? If you believe in the naturalistic explanation of our bodies and living and death, once we die, once all, all our physicality just, you know, it stops living, that's it, no more consciousness, we cease to exist. This, brothers and sisters, is the reality of the darkness around us. If that's the fate that awaits us, What's the difference? Why not live it up as much as we can? Why not carpe diem and seize the day and do whatever that will satisfy us today? And sow our wild oats. The entire world in the most naturalistic explanations cannot bring us to a satisfaction, a sense of destiny beyond the mortal coils of this life. Have you guys ever read Shakespeare? Do you guys remember in your English class, if you ever read Hamlet, whether tis mortal to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune? Where do I go after, I, after they bury my body? Will my consciousness be able to continue the experience of life as we know it today? You see, when Jesus is speaking of himself as being the light of the world, he's not speaking of himself as a natural, visible light, like the light from the sun. In fact, when Apostle Paul comes to meet the Lord Jesus, he talks about, he recounts that day when he was on the way to Damascus. He says, this is his words, a light shone from heaven brighter than the noonday sun. Today it's kind of overcast, it's not that bright, but think about one of those sunny California days when the sun is just blasting. You need shades, you need sunglasses, you know? But it's brighter than that. It's the kind of light that shines directly through our skin and into our hearts, into our conscience, right? It revives our conscience, brings our conscience to life. Our, our spirit that's dying, decrepit, bringing it back to life. Our soul coming back to life, embracing the light. It is a direct reference to the moral lamp over the world that emanates from and returns to heaven as the glory of God. When that woman who was caught in adultery, without her accomplice, mind you, I mean, there should have been the other person too, I, I ask you this, was it not glorious that there was no one there to condemn her? Jesus was very much in the right to condemn her. If there's anybody in the whole world, in the whole universe, that could have condemned her, Jesus was it. He was the only one that could. But he didn't condemn her. Wasn't that glorious? That is light of the world, my brothers and sisters. Light of the world. There is a light that will shine on what we did wrong. There is a spotlight that will shine on what we did wrong and will condemn us, but the Lord Jesus choose, chooses to forgive us. In choosing not to condemn her, 
He has lit the path to a win-win situation. One, a path of repentance for that particular woman. And another path for, for the conscience of the people of the crowd to re- reflect upon ourselves. Usually that's where we get into trouble. We condemn the other person. And we think that we're off clear because, you know, I mean, there's something really perverted and twisted about human psychology. We think that if we condemn the other person, that we go scot-free. But that's not the case at all. It actually makes it worse, right? What did Jesus do? In that moment where he shone as the light of the world, they were able to look at themselves truly, realistically, and they realized that they couldn't do it. They were guilty as well. Now that is light, brighter than the sun, brighter, brighter than any, any, any heavenly bodies that they say there are things brighter than the sun, right? I want you to imagine how savage this world would be without that light. How savage would this world be without that light? light of Jesus. We rejoice and we praise Him because He is that light. Amen? Amen? Now, Jesus Christ is the moral reference to where we are free from the insecure need to condemn others. Because if you have Jesus in your, in your life, you don't have to condemn other people. You don't. You could because you're a loving brother. You could help them along the way because when somebody's caught in sin, they're in pain, right? We want to pull them out of that. But it's not to condemn the other person. And also, when we have Jesus as our moral reference, we have the freedom to repent. We're not locked into the sin life that will drive us to death. We're able to bring the problems that we have, that we suffer to the light of the body of Christ, to bring it out onto the surface so that it can be extinguished, so that it can be evaporated into the, into the heat, into the, into the air. We are able to turn to God when we do momentarily go astray. But I want to go one step further because it is a very weak statement to reduce Jesus to just a moral reference. Jesus Christ is actually the highest ethic. He is a supreme supplier of all goodness. If you ever have questions when you go to college, when you're having discussions with people from other faiths, our, our faith is, is categorically different from other religions because we're not talking about some mythology. We're not talking about the way for us to reach the goodness of gods up there. We're talking about the very supplier of all goodness coming down to earth to impute His righteousness and His goodness onto us, to credit us as being good because we trust Him, not our own, on our own faculties. Not on our own sense of righteousness. Not on our own sense of right and wrong. Remember the first error? We wanted to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because we want to be like God. We're saying we already had that. We don't want that anymore. We're going to take the cross. We're going to trust Jesus. He is himself love. The highest ethic. The source of all goodness. Jesus is love. God is love. God showed that he's love through Jesus, right? You want a concrete picture of what that love looks like? It's in Jesus Christ. Amen? And God the Father and the Holy Spirit in in Jesus Christ, they're in this relational support, promoting, and glorifying of each other. 
Father, glorify your name. That's what Jesus says. And then you know what happened after that? A voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Jesus does not promote himself. He was, from the get-go, promoting the Father, and the Father was promoting him. And Jesus sent the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit would draw people near to God the Father. And they're working in unison, the three of them, as one God. That's, that's our God. We live in a day and age in a world it's all about self-promotion. Slap that like button and uh, don't forget to subscribe, right? That's, that's the model these days, right? I want to get a thousand likes, a million likes, right? And in fact, in our very text, Pharisees accuse Jesus. You're bragging. You're promoting yourself. You're testifying on your own behalf. But what they're missing is that Jesus' testimony is of his own father. And by what Jesus does... The Father testifies as to His Son. What Jesus does, God shows, God the Father shows, that's my Son. Nobody has to say anything. The people that understand something about that goodness, without all their book learnedness and self-reliance, they will be able to notice, shoot, there's something totally different about this person. By what Jesus does, the people get glimpses of God the Father without dropping dead. Did you guys know this? That nobody can see God and live? That's what it says in Exodus 33, 20. Moses would talk to God as if they're friends, as if they're like college buddies. They would talk to each other, have conversations. And one day, Moses wants more. Because, you know, when you have God, you just want more, okay? I mean, you don't meet God and go, ah, enough God, too much God. That never happens. When you really meet with God, the only, you just want more God, more. And so after, after their history together, you know, leading the people in the, in the desert, he says, can, I, can you at least have your glory pass before me? That's what, that's what God answers. God answers, you know what, okay, I'll, I'll just let my glory pass behind you, but, but don't look at me directly because if you do, you will die. No one can see me and live. Jesus, as our mediator, we see the Father in His heart. And it is as if we're, if we're doomed and dead from that moment on, because that's like when you, when you witness God, I mean, how can we live on? How can we continue living as if, as, as if nothing changed? If you saw God, something's got to change, right? We can no longer be living in the same way. Our old ways are, are dead now. You start anew with the light of the world shining inside our hearts. There is no way that our belief can compare to other religions. It doesn't stand even close. The revelation that God has given us is infinity apart. Because when you get to the spiritual matters and eternal matters of, of the things about eternity, it, it divides into ways and directions and in speed that it's just scary how, how separate, how different it is, how distinct it is. And Jesus illuminates our souls. That's the quality of the person of Jesus. He shines his light warmly into the so-called subconscious. A lot of times we do things without our, our, our awareness, right? We do things because, you know, we still have this intuition. We have this animalistic instinct still. But Jesus shows us that motivations 
that remain from our sin nature, he shines that into us so that we could correct it, so that we could be cleansed, sanctified, so that we could grow into his image. Now, the reason why we're having this confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees is that uh, in the Exodus, the Jews were given the law. They were given the Ten Commandments. Let me ask you guys, just uh, raise your hands if you think the Ten Commandments are good. The Ten Commandments are good. It's good. Everything that God has given them, the Jewish people, even, even the law, they were, it was good. But the only problem is that just performing the legalities, you know, just trying to pass by the law, it never has the capacity to letting the people grow holy from their inner life. You know what I mean? It does not, it does not have us grow out, you know. We don't, we don't keep the law because, because we know God and we know that, that that is the right way. But just because we want to fulfill the law to our own satisfaction, to our own level of, of comfort. And uh, the problem historically is that the issue of the heart, it only, not only remained unsolved, it only grew worse. It grew worse. The very law that was meant to bind the Israelites into one nation was actually being used as an instrument of comparing each other into an elitist hierarchy. The people that were closer to keeping the law, they were on top, and the people that were disqualified, they were excluded. For example, the Samaritans, those who were mixed, of mixed heritage and blood, they were not even worthy to have the worship space shared together. Those guys, they had to worship on that other mountain. That's how it was. The community of God was supposed to be a warm community of His hesed. Hesed is the Hebrew word for loving kindness, God's unique loving kindness. And uh, it had degraded into an exclusive association of those people who are like-minded as to their own righteousness, as their own, own excellence. It's like, a, it's like a secret club of all the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the priests, and the teachers of the law. They all grew self-sufficient in their knowledge, and subsequently, they became, they grew blind to their own sinfulness. They had a darkness in their hearts, and the light could not shine. The darkness has not understood the light that was shining into them. That's the tragedy. That's the tragedy when we read the, in John. Look at what Jesus says. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. This is after he forgave the adultering woman. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me in your own law. It is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. This is a statement that he makes. This is Jesus shining his light on them, pointing to his Father. Pointing to the law, to the lawgiver. And pointing, shining the light on their hell-bent condemnations. What does it mean that Jesus is light of the world? It is through Jesus that we're able to see our God the Father. How could we fathom 
personhood, a heart. If we were looking at just the things in the universe that exist, like even when we're looking at that tree, even we're looking at the, 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 the leaves, the ocean, the tides, and all those things, how can we really, really understand the Father's heart if it wasn't for Jesus and what he did? It is because of Jesus and what he did that we understand, oh, okay, that's the Father's heart. That is God the Father. This is what they ask him. Where is your father? They're asking Jesus, where is your father? You do not know me or my father. Jesus replied, if you knew me, you would know my father also. What did he just say a little bit earlier? This is what he says. I pass judgment on no one, right? But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. What did Jesus say? You do not know me or my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. Dear Lord, dear Lord, <laughs> do you know this Jesus? That's the question that I have to ask you point blank today. Do you know this Jesus? Because then, that means that you also know the Father, the source of all things good the giver of the bread of life, the giver of the light of this world. Amen? The moment when Jesus shone his light so bright that he would cast his rays into an eternity in both directions, past and future. If you could picture with me, like, a, I don't know, I don't know what's more powerful than a nuclear explosion. That's all we know, right? Just imagine something explosive, just, just blowing up everything in the smithereens in, a, in a, just a, such a bright light, like a supernova. There was no moment when he shone so brightly than when he was suspended between the heavens and the earth on the cross, paying for our sins and asking forgiveness from the Father. He is the light of the world. If you love Jesus, it is that light that is shining in you now. Let us close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your message today. Lord, uh, we have a low turnout today, and it's been growing that way, but I trust that these ears that are present, they were meant to hear it because it is your truth. May your light shine in us and may we too fulfill our function as to reflect the light of the world from our hearts that are shined to a mirror polish from your word every day. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.